Good morning. It's Sunday, June the 5th, and I'm Wimala. And today we're going to start with meditation from 10 to 15 minutes, and then read, probably finish this beautiful book we've been reading. It's the expanded edition of Becoming Your Own Therapist, combined with Make Your Mind an Ocean. And it's written by Lama Yeshe, who died in 1970, well, 1985. This book was written from talks he gave, mostly in Australia, in 1975. So we're on the final Q&As from his, the last talk in the book. So after we sit, get started, you can just let the sitting be to relax your mind, calm your mind, and then it's a beautiful place to start to even hear the reading so more can get through that there are fewer distractions. And then go about your day or your evening with a beautiful sense of peace. And that's what meditation is doing. We're learning to calm the mind and that allows us to have a better chance at understanding the world the way it really is, seeing reality clearly, finding true happiness, kind of cutting through all the triviality of the world and the uh, kind of the sugar coating. So we began by learning just how to calm our mind because our mind is full of distractions. So we're learning to just let the mind settle down, let it become more uh, compatible with what we, how we want to use our mind. Not in a restless, shooting off in all directions kind of life, but a, a more intentional life. So we'll begin with that. So just um, see this as a way to relax your body and relax your mind. So we usually close our eyes, which cuts off some of the visual distraction that uh, we're usually bombarded with. So we close our eyes, but our other sense doors are open. Those are our ears for hearing, our nose for smelling, our sense of taste, our sense of physical contact. So feeling the breeze on your skin, or the warmth of something, if, if it's cold, the warmth of a sweater over your shoulders. Feeling the connection your body is making right now with the earth. And our mind is one of our senses as well. So in our, in our Buddhist teachings, in our Buddhist psychology, we use the mind as a uh, we think of the, our mind with the brain as the part of the body that uh, is thinking. So our thoughts are also included when we talk about keeping our sense doors open. But when we meditate, 
when we have this intentional pause in our day, we even work with our thoughts differently. Right now, just be with your body breathing. The breath is our anchor. We can keep coming back to our breath whenever we realize our mind is distracted or whenever one of our senses is pulling us towards something which is the distraction itself. So when we see thoughts arise due to these distractions, we can see them as another, uh, just another part of the function of the body. So we can see the thoughts arise and we can just let them go for the time being. We don't feed them with attention. We just let them rise up and let them go when they see we're not going to get sidetracked by them. We're not repressing the thinking. Something may arise that we want to look at. Something may arise that we want to wait for later to look at. We can just make a note, thinking, there's thinking. The same thing with sound. So be with the breath. With each out-breath, let go. If you feel like you can't settle down, you came rushing to sit down and you're, you're really feeling restless, you can also begin with two or three deeper breaths in and out. Really exaggerate the breath and the sound. And that can help us come into the present moment more and just be right in the moment in your body You can also connect words with the in-breath and the out-breath. Breathing in, I am peaceful. Breathing out, I am safe. Peaceful, safe.
Just attach any words that fit for you. Breathing in, I am grateful. Breathing out, I am free. Just keep letting go of any burdens we feel. Let go of your list of things to do. This is a time to focus on your inner self. To relax your body, relax your mind. If you lose track of which part of the breath, what phrase you're using, or if you're counting your breaths, if you lose track of counting, count one for the in-breath, two for the out-breath. Just count up to five, and then begin again. If you lose track of where you are, then you know your mind has been distracted. Then you just start over again with one. And you've become a little bit more aware of how your mind easily becomes distracted. You begin to see that. So that's a very important part of the practice. Don't feel bad when you lose your place. This is how we learn. We're taming the mind. We're learning to work with it. If you're like me, your head may go back as you sit. 
So be sure you check once in a while to see. Bring your chin down so your head is straight, your neck isn't pulling back. This practice is for you. So as, as we end the short practice, when we finish and we've done the Q&A, you can come back to it. So if you have time, you can extend your practice. And you can listen as I'm reading and just let that be an extension of your practice if you like. So let's send merit and then we'll begin our reading. May everything that we do and say and think today be done not only for our own benefit, but for the benefit of all living beings. We become a refuge for others our kindness, our patience, our generosity.
we become safe for others. So may everyone be well and know true happiness and joy and feel safe in this world and be peace. Thank you. So now let's read. I'll be taking sips from my squirrel cup today at just the allergies from all the golden green uh, dust from the trees gets in my throat. So I thought it was a good day for the squirrel mug. <laughs> so we are in the last pages, the last part of the Q&A from the last talk. And the Q&A is really full of a good, you know, additional teachings, not just elaborating, but extras. So make your mind an ocean is this last part. Uh, the last part ends on, uh, if you can understand the psychological aspects of human problems, you can really generate true loving-kindness towards others. Just talking about loving-kindness doesn't help you develop it. Some people may have read about loving-kindness hundreds of times, but their minds are the very opposite. It's not just philosophy, not just words. It's knowing how the mind functions. I think that's really important. It's not just philosophy, not just words. It's knowing how the mind functions. Only then can you develop loving kindness. Only then can you become a spiritual person. Otherwise, though you might be convinced you're spiritual, it's just intellectual, like the arrogant man who believes he's a good husband. It's a fiction. Your mind just makes it up. So we let go of the duality, too, good and bad. It is so worthwhile that you devote your precious human life to controlling your mad elephant mind and giving directions to, and giving directions to your powerful mental energy. If you don't harness your mental energy, confusion will continue to rage through your mind and your life will be completely wasted. Be, a, be as wise with your own mind as you possibly can. That makes your life worthwhile. And then he ends, I don't have much else to tell you, but if you have questions, please ask. He's, he's very humble. First question. I understand what you said about knowing the nature of your own mind bringing you happiness, but you use the term everlasting, which implies that if you understand your mind completely, you can transcend death of the physical body. Is this correct? The Lama says, yes, that's right, but that's not all. If you know how, when negative physical energy arises, you can convert it into wisdom. In this way, your negative energy 
digest itself and doesn't end up blocking your psychic nervous system, that's possible. Is the mind body or is the body mind? <laughs> his, his answer, what do you mean? The question again, because I perceive the body. And the Lama says, because you perceive it. Do you perceive this rosary? And he holds up his mala beads. Yes. Does that make it mind? Because you perceive it? That's what I'm asking you. Well, that's a good question. Your body and mind are very strongly connected. When something affects your body, it also affects your mind. But that doesn't mean that the relative nature of your phys but that doesn't mean that the relative nature of your physical body, its meat and bone, is mind. Mind. You can't say that. Next question. What are the aims of Buddhism? Enlightenment, brotherhood, universal love, super consciousness, realization of the truth, the attainment of nirvana, all of the above. <laughs> super consciousness, the fully awakened state of mind, universal love, and an absence of partially or bias-based partiality or bias based on the realization that all living beings throughout the universe are equal in wanting to be happy and to avoid feeling unhappy. At the moment, our dualistic, wrong conception minds discriminate. This is my close friend. I want to keep her forever and not share her with others. One of Buddhism's aims is to attain the opposite of this, universal love. Of course, the ultimate goal is enlightenment. In short, the aim of Lord Buddha's teachings on the nature of the mind is for us to gain all those realizations you mentioned. But which is considered to be the highest or most important aim? The highest aims are enlightenment and the development of universal love. The narrow mind finds it difficult to experience such realizations. In Tibetan paintings, how do colors correspond with states of meditation or different psychological states? Different kinds of mind perceive different colors. We say that when we are angry, we see red. That's a good example. Other states of mind vi visualize their own respective colors. In some cases, where people are emotionally disturbed and unable to function in their daily lives, surrounding them with certain colors can help settle them down. If you think about this, you will discover that color really comes from the mind. When you get angry and see red, is that color internal or external? Think about it. What are the practical daily life implications of, you, of your saying that in order to have the idea that something is good, you must also have in your mind the idea of bad? I was saying that when you interpret things as good or bad, it's your own mind's interpretation. What's bad for you is not necessarily bad for me. 
but my bad is still my bad. Is the answer? Your mind is bad for you because your mind calls it bad. Can I go beyond that? Yes, you can go beyond that. You have to ask and answer the question, why do I call this bad? You have to question both the object and the subject, both the external and the internal situations. In that way, you can realize that the reality is somewhere in between, that in the space between the two, there's a unified mind. That's wisdom. How old were you when you entered the monastery? I was six. What is nirvana, or nibbana in Pali? When you transcend the wrong conception, agitated mind, and attain fully integrated, everlastingly satisfied wisdom, you have reached nirvana. Every religion says that it is the one way to enlightenment. Does, does Buddhism recognize all religions as coming from the same source? The Lama's answer, there are two ways of answering that question, the absolute and the relative. Religions that emphasize the attainment of enlightenment are probably talking about the same thing, but where, they're dif- where they differ is in their approach, in their methods. I think this is helpful, but it's also true that some religions may be based on misconceptions. Nevertheless, I don't repudiate them. For example, a couple of thousand years ago, there were some ancient Hindu traditions that believed the sun and moon to be gods. Some of them still exist. From my point of view, those conceptions are wrong, but I still say that they're good. Why? Because even though philosophically they're incorrect, they teach, they still teach the basic morality of being a good human being and not harming others. That gives their followers the possibility of reaching the point where they discover for themselves, oh, I used to believe that the sun was a god, but now I see that was wrong. Therefore, there's good in every religion and we should not judge. This is totally right. That is totally wrong. Don't do that. As far as you know, what is life like for people in Tibet these days? Are they free to pursue their Buddhist religion as before? This is 1975. He says, they are not free and are completely prohibited from any religious practice. The Chinese authorities are totally against anything to do with religion. Monasteries have been destroyed and sacred scriptures burned. Question, but even though their books have been burned, do the older people still keep the Dharma in their hearts and minds, or have they forgotten everything? It's impossible to forget to separate their minds from such powerful wisdom. Dharma remains in their hearts. All religions, for example, Hinduism, teach their adherents to avoid evil actions and to practice good ones, and that good karmic results will ensue. How, according to Buddhism, does this accumulation of positive karma help one attain enlightenment? Mental development does not happen through radical change. 
Defilements are eliminated or purified slowly, slowly. There's a gradual evolution. It takes time. Some people, for example, cannot accept what Buddhism teaches about universal love, that you should want others to have the happiness you want for yourself. They feel it's impossible for me to love all others as I love myself. It takes time for them to realize universal love or enlightenment because their minds are preoccupied by misconceptions and there's no space for wisdom. But slowly, slowly through practicing their religion, people can be led to perfect wisdom. That's why I say that a variety of religions is necessary for the human race. Physical change is easy, but mental development takes time. For example, a doctor might tell a sick person, your temperature is very high, so please avoid meat and eat only dry biscuits for a few days. Then as the person starts to recover, the doctor slowly introduces heavy food into the diet. In that way, the doctor gradually leads the person back to healthy, to perfect health. A variety of religions or variety is necessary for the human race. Next question. When Tibetan monks and nuns die, do their bodies disappear? Do they take their bodies with them? Yes, they carry them to their next lives in their jola, monk's shoulder bag. That's a Buddha bag, we call it. And he says, no, I'm joking. No, that's impossible. Still, there are certain practitioners whose bodies are digested into wisdom and actually have disappeared. That's possible, but they don't take their bodies with them physically. Since our minds can deceive us, and without a teacher we can't discover the truth, are Buddhist monasteries designed so that each monk pulls his colleague up to the next step of knowledge in a sort of chain Is that what you're doing now, and do you teach in order to learn? Yes, monasteries are something like that, and it's also true that I learn as I teach. But why we need teachers is because book knowledge is just dry information, and if left as such, can be as relevant as the wind whistling through the trees. We need a key to put into experience to unify that knowledge with our minds. Then knowledge becomes wisdom and the perfect solution to problems. For example, the Bible is an excellent book that contains all kinds of great methods. But if you don't have the key, the knowledge that's in the Bible doesn't enter your heart. Just because a book is excellent doesn't necessarily mean that by reading it you'll gain the knowledge it contains. The only way that that can happen is for your mind to first develop wisdom. Well, I've gone over our time, but there's still more questions in this chapter. So maybe on Tuesday we'll read more of this, and I'll have uh, chosen uh, something new to start. Okay, so... Thank you so much for being part of my practice and for being here and have a beautiful, beautiful day.
and a beautiful beginning to your to your new week. Thank you.